we need to sound the alarm. This is an emergency, this is a climate crisis, and we need to act now. As you know, unfortunately, in politics, there is a, always a huge trend to keep the status quo. The problem is that the status quo is a suicide. We are losing the fight against climate change, says UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Even if countries were on track to meet their Paris Agreement targets, which they're not, the world would experience unsustainable levels of warming. But there may be signs of hope. We discuss the state of global climate action with Mr. Guterres on this week's episode. Plus, Republicans attack their own on climate, while more Democratic presidential hopefuls roll out bold climate action plans. We kick off the show with a check-in on U.S. politics. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media, and I'm here in Venice Beach with Brandon Hurlbutt, our Democrat, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, and a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. And we have on the line Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. We recently returned from a great trip to Vienna where we attended the R20 Austrian World Summit and had a chance to speak with several thought leaders on climate and energy issues, including former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and teen climate activist Greta Thunberg. Brandon, what did you think? Was meeting Greta Thunberg all you hoped and dreamed it would be? Greta is um, on the cover of Wired magazine this week. It was so great to meet her, and she's an inspiration to us all. Not, not an inspiration to all of us, Brandon, but perhaps an inspiration to you at least. <gasps> all right, Shane. Fun hater. And 16-year-olds around the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we were in Europe discussing the climate crisis, we learned that DOE is now calling the export of liquefied natural gas the export of freedom gas. I got so many emails from all of my DOE homies saying, you know, we should have thought of that. Maybe we should have called our Tesla investment uh, an investment in freedom cars or, you know, Solyndra could have been freedom panels. (laughs) (laughs) Freedom panels. That would be good. You know what? I I think I know, you know, we don't always see an eye on this, but I think exporting U.S. natural gas is a key, you know, part of our energy and national security uh, policy, but calling it freedom gas and freedom molecules, some reason, you know, rubs me the wrong way. I have to imagine other people feel that way too. But if it works, then it's amazing. If it works, then it's amazing. Freedom gas aside, if you haven't heard our episode with Arnold and Greta that I just mentioned, be sure to check it out on last week's show. Uh, Greta made some really interesting points in Austria about climate action needing to go beyond green growth and calling for leaders to address the climate, quote, no matter how uncomfortable or unprofitable. So that was an interesting point that she made that we debate. Look, she's impressive for a 16 year old. There's no doubt about that. But I can't possibly express how difficult it is in U.S. politics and especially Republican U.S. politics to message that airplanes and eating meat are bad, bad things. Like This is not going to help us expand the dialogue. And honestly, when I talk to to staff on Capitol Hill and, and other people who make decisions in this space, they share my belief that there are good economic opportunities here. And, and I, don't, I don't say that as a messaging point. I think that's true. And, and I just can't tell you how bad it is to have a movement out there saying this is not an economic opportunity. This is, this is a, a situation where you do with less because it's the right thing to do. That's not going to help us move the needle here. I mean, to be fair, she does say that there are opportunities, but that you cannot get there alone 
with a green economy. But totally hear your point, Shane. You know, Shane, the way to counteract that is if Republicans came out with plans that got us to 1.5 degree, you know, Celsius in line with the science, you know, that doesn't require, you know, making these sacrifices. Everybody would love to see that. Well, that actually tees up a conversation I want to have now about how recently introduced Republican climate plans are being received or rather rejected. So before turning to our interview with U.N. Chief Antonio Guterres, I want to touch on the latest in U.S. climate politics, where we're now seeing some moves on both sides of the aisle that I think are really important to address. As some Republicans inch toward climate policy for the first time in years, those in the party who reject climate science are getting nervous that a more permanent shift is coming. And now they're going on the attack against their own allies. That's according to a recent article by E&E News, which refers to criticism against Florida Republican Matt Goetz, who acknowledges the science on climate change and authored the Green Real Deal, which is a response to the left's Green New Deal. The article also mentions other Republican lawmakers who are amenable to climate action. So, Shane, I know this is a point that you brought up before that, you know, at the leading edge of the climate dialogue, that those conversations are kind of off-putting to anyone on the Republican side. And I think this article kind of points to that tension, that it's proving hard enough for Republicans open to climate action to even find allies and to find support. So what did you think of this piece? Yeah, it made me so angry and and only because it was really well done. I mean, what the journalist captured here is the frustration that I live with on a day-to-day basis. And as you know, Julia, I posted this for you guys to read because I really want you to understand why I come from the perspective I come from. It's not that I think I'm right and you're wrong about everything. It's that this is sort of the dynamic that I'm dealing with. So just really quick, this is the type of garbage that I think sets Republicans back in the eyes of the American public in a number of ways. Certainly younger voters, younger voters that we're going to need. Like, look at the way that um, that some of the people who commented for this article, like Mike McKenna and Myron Neville, treated the Green New Deal. They basically said the Green New Deal is awful because it addresses climate. And th- the fact that they want to address the climate crisis is what makes it awful. That's not what makes it awful. What makes it awful is that it's bad policy. It rejects market capitalism wholesale. It basically gives government way too much control over the economy. It engages in, you know, social and economic engineering, and it's based on several unsubstantiated assumptions. Now, we can debate those points all you want, but that's why Republicans should think it's bad. They shouldn't think it's bad just because it addresses climate. Addressing climate is good. We just need to be thoughtful in how we do that. So just for reference, Mike McKenna, who's referenced in the piece, is a Republican energy lobbyist and was previously on President Trump's energy department transition team. And then you also mentioned Myron Ebel. He's the director of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Which is a libertarian think tank, which is you know actively opposed to climate action. So those are some of the voices referenced in this piece. Yeah, and, and Julia, let me read you some quotes uh, by both the gentleman that you mentioned, but also by Steve Malloy, who's the editor of Junk Science. And I'm going to put these out there liberally, but um, but th- these are the collection of individuals. Individuals these are from. Uh, one CEI wants to quote educate Republicans and thereby bring them back in line. That sounds like a great way to start a cult. It doesn't sound like a way to have a serious policy discussion. And that just drove me nuts. Here's another one. It's when Republicans offer alternatives that we get beat. That's the biggest line of bull that I've ever heard. I think when you get beat in a public policy debate is when you refuse to learn, you refuse to evolve, and you refuse to offer better alternatives. There is no middle ground, says Myron Ebel. What do you mean there's no middle ground? There has to be a middle ground. Literally, there is no other way forward. 
Uh, he also blames Republican climate action on young staffers who don't yet understand the party's position. Now, this is wrong on so many levels, not only because this isn't the party's position, this is Myron's position. The party stands for fiscal responsibility, personal freedom, freedom of expression, separation of powers, limited government, free and open markets, and most importantly, ingenuity and problem solving, uh, peace through strength, helping others. That's what the Republican Party stands for. And it's this kind of bull that I think really turns off young voters. And it makes me angry because I don't think that this is what Republicans stand for. And we can't have people out there threatening Republicans, saying that this is, you know, uh, Steve Malloy says, if Republicans don't get back in line, tougher action will be required. What kind of tough action is going to be required from the editor of Junk Science? This is complete nonsense. I'll stop now. But this is the problem we have right now in my party. And what I want to do is elevate all of those traits that I elevated a moment ago that I think the Republican Party stands for. And I don't want to be fighting over climate and whether or not people need to, quote unquote, get in line. Shane, a couple of things. One, I think you have the wrong idea of the Green New Deal, um, but that you know could be for another discussion. Number two, I am really happy to hear your emotion on this. It's really, you know, it gives me some hope because I think the question I have for you is, what is the Republican Party? Is it the, all of those things that you outlined do not seem to be things that Donald Trump agrees with, uh, the leader of the Republican Party. And so is the Republican Party you or is it these guys in the E&E news article we just discussed uh, and Donald Trump? I mean, I don't think it's either, right? I didn't create the Republican Party. I bought into it because these are the things that I believe in. It's been a confusing couple of years. Um, you know, one thing that, that frustrates me a lot, and we don't need to talk about this on this show, is that we don't really have the right to freely express ourselves anymore. If you don't fall in line with the, you know, uh, accepted ideology, you're not able to speak on college campuses. You're not able to do these things. So th those are the issues that, that I think make me a Republican, the sort of lack of government intervention, lack of censorship, freedom of, of markets. That's where I, you know, again, I bought in, I didn't design it. So I think that there's, there's some stuff going on. Uh, there's internal politics on both sides right now. Certainly the Republicans are um, pursuing some policies that I don't fully buy into, but I think as Arnold, you know, articulated on previous episodes, because right now all elected Republicans aren't doing exactly what I want them to be doing, it doesn't make me no longer a Republican. It just makes me want to work that much harder to you know, sort of reemphasize the things that we all believe in. And I think addressing climate can be one of those things. And I think addressing climate is going to be one of those things that gets younger voters to say, you know, I don't like high taxes. I am for fiscal responsibility. But these guys over here, these Republicans are crazy. So I don't want to give them that excuse. I want them to have to think harder about the other issues. So I don't think it's me. I'm also not saying, Brandon, that it's President Trump. But I think it's a party that just doesn't fully have its identity right now. Shane, you know, that's interesting because I think, you know, this is really central to our show. There's there's people that are wondering, should Democrats even try to work with Republicans? And they read the stuff that was in that article. It makes the case for people to say, you know, it's not even worth it. There's no chance with these guys. Uh, so to hear you push back on that so hard, you know, hopefully gives us hope for some path forward um, on working on the two parties working together to solve this issue. 
Well, and Brandon, that's what what I really want. And, 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 you know, from the center, from the right, from the left, I want to purge these guys, not the other way around. If we let these guys punch above their weight, the five of them out there saying this crazy stuff, let them purge people like me, like Arnold from the party, then they win and we're on a really bad path. But if we fight back, we make a stronger case, we're more convincing, we communicate our ideas better and we find policy solutions, we're going to purge them out. And then I think we get back on a path to sustainability. I hope that the leadership of the party listens to you because, you know, there's an article in the New York Times today by David Brooks with the title, The Coming GOP Apocalypse. And it just runs through some, you know, some numbers on how young people feel about the Republican Party. Uh, And it's very um, stark. (laughs) Essentially, you know, young people um, are siding with, you know, liberal and Democrats and voting that way. And there's a huge gap. And I think if Republicans continue to stonewall on climate, it's going to that's the point you're making. It's going to make it harder to attract young voters to your party. And millennials are now the largest voting block in the United States. And Generation Z is coming up right behind them. So these are all future you know, voters. And um, I hope that they will see your point, Shane. Well, speaking of appealing to young voters, I want to turn now to the Democratic side of the aisle, where two more presidential candidates just came out with new climate plans. Joe Biden unveiled his wide-ranging climate and energy platform shortly before we hit record, which vowed to go well beyond President Obama's policies at a time when he's facing skepticism from the left for being too moderate. Elizabeth Warren, meanwhile, also released a climate plan, calling it her, quote, green manufacturing plan for America, which is apparently just one piece of a broader platform. So, Brandon, did anyone get your vote today when you saw these when you saw these plans come out? Well, I was concerned when there was all this talk of a middle ground uh, Biden plan that I would not vote for him. But after seeing his plan today, he's definitely still in the running for me. It's um, it's really great. Um, He, you know, gave complimentary remarks to the Green New Deal. It's an ambitious plan. I can't wait to dig into all the details, you know, on future episodes. But I think Elizabeth Warren is talking about industrial mobilization, a couple trillion dollars, uh, very exciting stuff. She is running um, a, a brilliant campaign. I, you know, you think about it in the beginning, everyone wrote her off over the Native American stuff, and nobody's talking about that. Everyone's talking about how, you know, what a great campaign she's been running for the last several months. Yeah, it's interesting to see people are upping their game. And I love that climate is their number one major policy item. That's that's so interesting. It's so different from any previous election ever. I know we could be doing the show every day and have enough content to do it. And, you know, every week it's been tough to, to, to stay current with everything. Um, so on the Biden plan, and I know we're going to dig into this more in the future, but I just wanted to flag a couple things that we had talked about in the past prior to this plan coming out and that I think would work really nicely in a Republican plan or in honestly just any plan that could pass the U.S. Congress. Two of the things that Joe Biden mentions, amongst many others, are you know integrating climate into trade policy and carbon adjustment fees at the border. These are two things that I think would be attractive to Donald Trump, whereby we don't tell people what they can and can't do, but if you want to sell products into the United States, we use our economic might to make sure that you're complying with the same clean air obligations and climate obligations that we're complying with. Those seem very pro-market to me. Those seem very pro-American manufacturing to me. And those seem like things that, that could be very uncontroversial if they were worked into a larger bill. So that got me excited, but I know there's a lot of other stuff in there that probably would not. 
Well, we will actually make the time to dig into these plans further rather than just cover them as they roll out. We're going to have dedicated episodes. We'll have a series where we go in more depth on each of the major plans put out by front running Democratic candidates. And we'll hopefully have other guests on the show and hopefully some of the candidates on the show to really flesh out what's being proposed here uh, in a more detailed manner. With that, we'll wrap up our U.S. politics segment of the show and turn now to our interview with U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. We're here at the Austrian World Summit with United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. So you said late last year that climate change is a global issue and we are all failing. With that in mind, what is the status of the effort to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius today? Are we succeeding or are we still failing? No, we are not succeeding. We are lagging behind. In Paris, countries made commitments. Those commitments, uh, even if fully met, would lead to an increase uh, in temperature in the end of the century above 3 degrees, which would mean a catastrophic situation. So it was clear, and Paris was conceived uh, in that way, that those commitments would have to be raised. And that is why it is so important the preparation of 2020, when the so-called national determined contributions, which means the engagements made by each government, will be reviewed. And they will need to be reviewed with much more ambition. What is dramatic is that even the commitments made in Paris that are not enough are not being fully met by several of the countries involved, and some of them relevant ones. So we are losing the race. Climate change is running faster than what we are. We are not winning the battle, and we need to uh, sound the alarm. This is an emergency. This is a climate crisis, and we need to act now. Because if we don't act now, we risk to create an irreversible situation in which it, whatever we do in the future, we will no longer be able to limit to 1.5 degrees the growth in temperature in the end of the century. And the the scientific community is very clear. 1.5 degrees is really the maximum that we can tolerate, point number one. Point number two, to reach 1.5 degrees in the end of the century, we must be carbon neutral in 2050. And that is a very demanding objective, but it is possible. We can do it. It's a matter of political will. The technology is on our side. The green energy today is the most profitable one, is cheaper than uh, energy produced by fossil fuels. We see technological evolution uh, uh, always in the right direction, but we still lack political will. We still are subsidizing fossil fuels. We still do not have uh, uh, the carbon pricing uh, in the majority of the countries of the world. Uh, We are still building coal-based power plants. So many wrong things are still being done. Many infrastructures that are now being built are still being built in a non-green way, and they will impact the global economy for decades. So Paris was a historic moment. 174 countries and the European Union came together to sign the agreement. We know since then the U.S. has made moves to withdraw. You mentioned other countries, other actors are not necessarily living up to their commitments. Why do you think that is? There was such a movement, so much energy around Paris. What do you think has changed? First of all, there are many lobbies. It is clear that uh, today the renewable energy is cheaper than the fossil fuel energy. But the fossil fuel lobby is very powerful. So uh, we are still spending, according to the IMF, there is about 5.2 trillion US dollars. That's every year. If we, if we count with the, 
the, the price of carbon that every year go to subsidize fossil fuels. And as I said in the meeting, uh, this is taxpayers' money. And I would like to see my money back instead of seeing that it is being spent to destroy the world. So the lobbies are there. I mean, the, the status quo is there. And many things require transformations. Transformations in the way we build cities, transformations in the way we produce energy, transformations in the way we uh, manage the industry, transformations in, which, in the way uh, we feed uh, the people. Uh, and those transformations require political will, commitment, and as you know, unfortunately in politics, there is a, always a huge trend to keep the status quo. The problem is that the status quo is a suicide. So time to sound the alarm, time to reverse the trend because we cannot go on with the same trends that uh, we are having today. You mentioned political will. Do you see that changing at all? It was interesting just recently to see the European Parliament elections and the Green Party did quite well. Uh, and yet you also see hyper-polarization and, and right-wing groups actually also succeeding. What do you make of the politics today? I think it is clear, uh, if you look at the European elections, it is obvious that the pro-European countries still have a very important majority. Uh, and uh, many people say that uh, those populist parties that were, uh, many were expecting that they would kind of overwhelm the situation, it's not true. They had some the growth. more right-leaning parties. They had some growth, but uh, nothing that has changed structurally the mm -hmm. nature of the, of the uh, European Parliament. On the other hand, it is clear that young generations have voted massively in several countries in green parties, which means that there is a growing conscience that climate change is the defining issue of our time. And if we fail climate change, we fail everything. So a political project in which climate change is not a clear priority is a political project that, in my opinion, has no chance to succeed. We have seen at the same time some rise of nationalism all over the globe. Do you feel like the move toward uh, Green Party candidates, and not just Green Party, but you know, candidates that make green issues central to their platform, do you think that there's more energy around that than, say, the nationalist movements that may hinder climate there action? There are two different things. One thing is the fact that uh, many people are angry because the globalization and the technological change that uh, many thought would uh, solve the problems of the world and that... Uh, the enormous wealth that was created would trickle down and benefit everybody. Now the truth is that it didn't. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, we have uh, the rust belts of this world. We have uh, people, sectors, industries that uh, were negatively impacted by globalization and technological change. And uh, they feel that governments didn't care for them. They feel political establishments ignored them. Uh, they felt also that uh, there was no coordination, international cooperation in managing, for instance, migration flows or refugee flows. They, they felt that uh, their uh, situation is at risk because their jobs are at risk, because uh, even for some of them, a false concept of identity is at risk. So this is a reaction that, of course, has inspired many people to vote for populist, even sometimes for xenophobic movements. So, but this is a problem that I think relates to the past and that political establishments need to be able to understand and need to be able to show to these people that they care for them. Mm -hmm. And especially now that we are facing the fourth industrial revolution, that there will be massive disruptions in labor markets. It means reforming educational systems to learn how to learn instead of learning many things, lifelong learning for everybody, and new safety nets um, to allow people to feel that uh, they are not at risk. So this is one area. The other area is the conscience that climate change became the 
defining issue of our time, the biggest threat that we face. And so that if we want to guarantee the future of our children, we need to give priority to that. So that's the problem of the future. Uh, it's and not it a consequence of, a, uh, of anger created by failures in the past, is uh, uh, a motivation related to the need to guarantee for us, for our children and our grandchildren, a healthy planet, and to avoid a catastrophic situation that would be a disaster for all of us. And maybe even indeed the climate solutions could help solve some of those issues of the past. It's clear that the green economy is, cre is creating jobs. But it is also clear that, uh, obviously, um, if you are a coal miner, you need, there needs to be a concern about their situation. Uh, that doesn't mean that we need to bet on coal. No, we, we mean to make sure that they have good social security mechanisms to support them, uh, that they have uh, good uh, training to get new skills that uh, allow them to have a better job. That means that uh, the region can be benefited with investments that uh, transform it into a modern region. I mean, we, we cannot just think because the green energy is the, the green economy is the economy of the future, we need to be able to think about the problems of those that will be in any case impacted negatively by the transformations that are necessary. And that is what was forgotten in the past and that's what, what left to the growth of this kind of populist movements. We, climate action is necessary, but we need to do climate action ensuring a just transition for those that will inevitably be impacted by the transformations that not only the green economy, but also the artificial intelligence, the, the way uh, the digital world is becoming more and more the normal uh, world, all these will have huge impacts in the lives of people and we need to care for the people that uh, will be negatively affected. What is your one message to the business community then? We're talking about political change, obviously economy is at the center of, of society. What is your message to the business community and investors specifically? First of all, businesses have social responsibility and uh, more and more business uh, people feel that uh, corporate social responsibility. But second, I mean, we know what the future is. Those that invest based on those areas that will grow in the future will be better than those that invest in areas that will become residual in the future. So what we ask business communities to be smart and to invest in what will be the economy of the future. And the economy of the future will be obviously more digital than today, more green than today. And so not to take that into account is to condemn investments that are made today to be less profitable and uh, less effective than those investments that bet on what inevitably will come. So we're here at the Austrian World Summit where you took the stage along with Greta Thunberg, the youth climate activist. You work on getting people at the highest levels of government to get on board with bold climate action. What do you think about the other end of the scale, the grassroots movements, the students and the young people? What is your message to them? I think that they need to uh, go on. They, need, they, they assumed a very uh, brave uh, initiative. And uh, as we are not doing well, as we are not getting there, as we are still losing the battle, as climate change is still running faster than we are, as we still need the alarm bell to sound, I think that the more the youth is able to lead the way to make things change, the better. 
do you see it having a real world impact, the student movement? A lot of them can't vote yet, but do you think that it is having oh, they an have. impact? I mean, uh, my experience now when talking to, when I visit my country and uh, talk to my friends at the family uh, meetings and whatever, it's very interesting. I mean, in the past, uh, adults would be teaching the children about many things. Now I see more and more children teaching their parents what they should eat, uh, how they should move, uh, and what mm -hmm. they should do uh, for a green world. And that is, I think, very, very reassuring about the future. Finally, you were recently in the Pacific Island nations of Fiji, Tuvalu, and Vanuatu. Can you paint us a picture just to sort of drive the issue home of how this is really is a crisis? What did you see there? Well, an island like Tuvalu uh, is the highest point is five meters high. The rising sea level is accelerating. And in the Pacific, it's four times uh, quicker than in other parts of the world. So these islands face an existential problem. But their populations want to keep their identity, their nationality, they don't want to disappear. Um, as it would happen to me as a Portuguese, I would hate to see my country disappear. Uh, so this is a very strong message uh, to us all. Um, but uh, other islands that have volcanic islands, like Fiji, uh, they have to relocate 40 villages because they are uh, at the coast. And if you think not about the, the Pacific Islands, uh, if you think about the Sahel, in the Sahel, climate change progressing very quickly is uh, enhancing conflict, enhancing terrorism, and the Sahel became a major threat not only to Central and Western Africa, but also even to Europe. And we saw, you see how terrorists now move around the world, and how terrorist acts happen everywhere. And you see storms taking place uh, global north in the United States, where I work now. You, you saw the heat waves in Northern Europe killing people. Uh, you see diseases progressing from tropical areas to temperate areas. Uh, uh, someone just told me that in Japan, in some islands, uh, you have already dengue and malaria. Uh, so, I mean, the message of the Pacific is very strong. I mean, it's states that are at risk, populations that do not want to lose their nationality, their identity, their countries. But let's not think that the climate change is a problem of the Pacific. Mm -hmm. The climate change is a problem of us all, and the dramatic impacts on public health, the dramatic impacts on the destruction of uh, environments are there everywhere, and uh, we need to take it very seriously. Sir, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. So Brandon and Shane, you guys were not in the room as I interviewed Guterres, so I wanted to turn to you and get some of your reactions to that conversation. Uh, Brandon, what did you think um, hearing Mr. Guterres speak? I was just so impressed. I mean, he seemed to really identify uh, the current state of what is going on in climate, what we need to do. Talked about the politics of populism and how that's affecting this. And um, it's really nice to have a world leader be so eloquent and so, you know, policy oriented. I wish we had that in, in our U.S. leader. <laughs> yeah, I think an important thing to note here is that he is the head of the U.N. He's not just a climate ambassador. I don't want to say just, but that is not his only focus is my point. And so to have him elevate climate to one of the major issues of our time, I think is interesting to see. Um, it's also a timely conversation we had because just as of last Saturday, it's been two years since President Trump announced he would withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement. And as Amy Harder at Axios just reported, the chasm between scientific findings and political action is only growing. So that is a disconcerting thing to see. Shane, what were your reactions to the interview? 
I mean, I think the interview, you know, stands on its own. I don't know enough about, um, you know, I haven't seen the world from his vantage point to comment on it. One thing that stuck out to me a lot, though, is he kept mentioning the lack of political will. And we talk about that a lot on this show. And I just started to reflect on, like, what does that mean? I, I know what it means in the United States, but what does it mean globally? And are we all doing our job, being us three right here, being, you know, other people who, who work in this space, being elected leaders, obviously not us, but others? Are we doing a good enough job educating the public about the real risks and the real threat? Like one thing I saw recently that really stood out to me when you talk about political will is that in the Midwest, because of all the floods and weather incidents, like 58% of the crops have been planted to date, 91% in a normal cycle would have been planted. So I think we all need to think about if we really want to see more political will um, around the globe, we need to think about how to meet people where they are and how to communicate with them, not about doom and gloom, but about what's happening, why it's happening, how it's happening, and what we can do to solve it and how it's going to help them. And I realize that's not a new concept, but I just heard him say political will over and over and over again. And that's sort of the theme of our show, but you can't force political will. You can educate people about the consequences of certain actions, and I think we all need to do a better job of that. It's a really interesting point on the farmers, Shane. I really wonder... We know that many of the battleground states in 2020 are, are in the Midwest, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with those farmers. They have gotten hit hard by the floods, the tariffs with China. Um, I wonder how that's going to impact their voting. I think a lot about the international implications. Obviously, the U.S. is critical here. Um, but what this means for the U.S. on the international stage, I think, is interesting. Um, virtually all other countries are committed to the Paris Climate Agreement still. And there was an article in Foreign Policy talking about how China and others have sort of stepped up on the global stage in the U.S.'s absence. And that's not just with respect to climate, but as it comes to the Arctic uh, negotiations, which we covered in a previous episode that I encourage people to listen to, how the U.S. did not participate in a joint declaration there while China was part of those discussions. I just wonder what that means on a broad geopolitical level, um, not just with respect to climate, but really with national security ultimately. And I also thought it was interesting um, how China and India are actually poised currently to meet their climate agreement targets, according to the Amy Harder piece in Axios. And, and that's not enough. As Guterres pointed out, even meeting the climate targets is not enough to keep to keep warming below um, reasonable levels. Uh, but I did think that was an interesting um, little nugget of information. Julia, I want to push back on you a little bit there, because I think, you know, the article that, that you shared said that, yes, China and India are meeting their goals. But keep in mind that when President Trump announced withdrawal from Paris, one of the, the grievances that he took with it were that we set stricter standards for ourselves than other nations that were big emitters like China and India. So saying they're on pace to meet their goals doesn't mean much if their goals weren't aggressive enough. And Amy flagged that in her piece. She basically said that this is leading some to question whether or not the goals that we set uh, for China and India were, were serious enough to address the problem. And the other piece of that is, what would the U.S. be doing differently, honestly, if Trump had not announced withdrawal? We haven't withdrawn from the agreement yet. The Clean Power Plan, which which was Obama's plan to start you know, attacking this, was thrown out by the courts, not by Republicans. So I don't really know what President Trump has done or what the U.S. has done that has stopped us from making the type of progress that we would have made you know, if the Obama administration had continued on. I think that's a super valid point when it comes to the actual reduction in carbon emissions. I, I totally take your point on that. And I take your point on the China and India piece. I think um, Climate Action Tracker, the group that you know tracks Paris Agreement targets, said the same thing, that they think China and India should be doing more. I think the point, though, about the U.S. withdrawing is about 
uh, tone and message and seriousness of such an agreement, an international agreement like the Paris Agreement. And with them indicating that they're going to withdraw, it definitely loses some of the momentum. So I think there's some concern there. Yeah, I mean, this is super frustrating because the reason we had to do the clean power plan was because we had Republicans who were unwilling to work with us on this. So it was a it was something that we did not it was a tool that was not the best tool to use. And that's why the you know courts threw it out. I mean, this this week is the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, June 6th. I mean, where the United States played the leading role in liberating the world, you know, from fascism. And here we are, you know, when we were in Europe, it, like you see all these other countries stepping up and leading on this. We are not leading. We're not even close. And it's because mainly of the Republicans. I don't think a lot of people want to be led. And that goes back to the point that I made earlier. I think we all have an obligation. Those of us who spend some time in this space have an obligation to first convince people that we have a problem and that they will benefit from addressing it before we try to beat them over the head with the solution. And I realize we don't have a lot of time, but I think, you know, in a war, it's very clear what the costs are, right? Um, in a situation like this where climate isn't very visible except for, you know, certain events that occur that are catastrophic, but then scientists will say, well, we can't tie any, you know, specific event to any specific emissions level. So we're dealing with a much more difficult subject matter than genocide in Germany. And we need to be a little bit more thoughtful in how we try to bring people along because when people want to be led, it's much easier to lead. With that, I'll have to stop the conversation and turn to our final segment. If you can't say something nice. So it's time to have our Democrat and Republican co-host say something nice and redeeming about the opposing political party. So Shane, let's have you go first. Sure. So mine is for Colorado governor and presidential candidate John Hickenlooper. Uh, you may have seen that he got booed uh, at an event in San Francisco for telling an audience of Democratic primary voters that socialism is not the answer to the political or social problems that we have now. That's a tough thing to do in the current with the current state of the Democratic uh, electorate. And obviously, they didn't appreciate his words. But I think sometimes you have to say the tough and inconvenient things, even when you know they're not going to be popular. And so I commend him for that. And I want him to get at least one compliment after all those boos. My say something nice is to Senator Lisa Murkowski uh, from the Republican senator from Alaska and Senator John Barrasso, the Republican senator from Wyoming. Uh, they participated uh, over the Memorial Day recess in a visit to the Arctic, which we just covered on our show. And I think that's um, I'm glad they took the time to go up there because everybody that goes and witnesses it comes back uh, and really internalizes um, the impacts that, you know, we're facing uh, or the challenges that we're facing. And so Senator Brasso said uh, climate change is real. The impacts are happening and we're looking at ways to address them. Uh, so that's good. Leadership from two Republican senators on climate. Well, we'll end the episode there. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Again, find us on Twitter, as always, at poly underscore climate. We're also on Facebook. Just search for political climate and Instagram at poly underscore climate. And leave us a review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, TuneIn, Stitcher. Look for us there, and we hope you'll subscribe. Thanks very much to Victoria Simon, our producer, for making this show possible. Uh, we hope you'll tune in next time. Are we on Kindle? <laughs> That's for reading, Brandon. <laughs>